you're looking for a happy place, you have found it. This is Live Happy Now. Thank you so much for making us a part of your day. I'm your host, J.R. Houston, and we are excited that you are here for a podcast dedicated to helping you find your true happiness through powerful psychology and relatable insights that you could apply to your daily life. We're brought to you, of course, by Live Happy Magazine, available on newsstands now, and you can find out more at livehappy.com. And while you're online checking out livehappy.com, Surf on over to lifereimagined.org as well. They are our partner in this, and they've got a ton of tremendous resources and even processes and exercises for you to go through to help you discover your true happiness. You know, as you awaken to the power of happiness, so do your dreams. So what's next? Well, find out at lifereimagined.org. In this edition of Live Happy Now, we are going to get the opportunity to hear from one of our favorite people, Tom Rath, who is a researcher and author who studies the role of human behavior in business, health, and well-being. He sat down for a conversation with our editor-at-large, Stacy Kaiser, and we are excited to bring it to you. Now, if you don't know much about Tom, you may have heard of some of his books, including his latest, Are You Fully Charged? The Three Keys to Energizing Your Work and Life. Not only is it receiving great critical acclaim, but it's going to be made into a feature-length documentary, and it's, in fact, in its late stages of production. So in this conversation, you're going to be hearing Tom and Stacy discuss the importance of positive interaction and how to handle negative moments. Tell us a little bit about what those three keys are and how you came up with them. Yeah, you know, it's interesting to kind of first go back to where a lot of this most recent work and research started. I've been uh, working on books kind of in the general field of happiness and positive psychology and well-being for more than a decade now, and um, so much great research on these topics, but yet I realized as I sat down a year or two years ago that I'm just trying to figure out, like everybody else, how do I apply some of these things on a day-to-day basis into my routine, kind of hour by hour and moment by moment. So um, that paired with all of the good research emerging recently about how we really create daily well-being in terms of that daily experience that makes a difference in the moment. So those two things kind of came together at a nice time. And I was trying to get down to what are the central elements of a really good day, not only for ourselves, but when we are we feel like we're making a difference for other people. And that essentially boiled down to three core elements that we can all work on on a daily basis. The first one being, um, how do we create more meaning in our work with kind of the small little things we do each day that make a difference for another person? The second element is those little interactions that we have and how can we ensure that we have far more positive than negative interactions in a given day? And then the, the third element is physical energy and what are the things that we do in terms of the way we eat and move and sleep on a day-to-day basis that give us the energy we need to be our best for other people each day. Can you describe in a little more detail what you mean when you talk about meaning and and where that plays a role for us? Yeah, you know, it's been fun for me to see all of the great work as it's come out just in the last few years uh, from several academic studies from Amy Wozweski at Yale and Jennifer Ocker at Stanford has been doing great work on it and others about there's a real distinction between uh, meaning and happiness in our lives, I think. And when we spend a lot of time essentially pursuing happiness for other people, that's probably the fastest way to not only pick ourselves up, but to get the whole social network moving forward in the right direction in parallel. And when you go a little bit deeper on how do you create meaning, what was honestly a relief to me is that it turns out meaning isn't something that just descends from the heavens on a sunny day or takes 10 years to work on. That meaning on a daily basis is really created through a series of small wins. And it's all about the little things you're doing to 
I mean, even if you're, let's say you're working in a call center and someone calls in who's irate and having a really rough day, if you just get that person back to neutral, that is a meaningful interaction that turns their day around. It probably makes a difference for their kids or spouse or friends later on that evening. And we've got to figure out that I think the trick there is we all do things that likely create meaning for someone else on a day-to-day basis. But when we surveyed 10,000 people, just 20% said that they did a lot of meaningful work yesterday. And my hunch is that the challenge is connecting the dots so that not only are we doing things that are meaningful each day, but we can see how that makes a difference for someone we're serving and acknowledge it in the moment. So let me ask you this. Um, This morning, I got up extra early. My daughter has her first job, and she had to be in early. And I got up at 5 o'clock so I could make her breakfast and send her off. Okay, she's almost 20. (laughs) So she certainly knows how to make her own breakfast. (laughs) And a lot of people would have said that's really crazy that I got up at 5 o'clock in the morning. But I really found a great deal of meaning in that. Is that what – I mean, are you talking about things that small? Absolutely. That's a quintessential example of – I mean, if if I – sit down in the evening and I'm reading a book with my daughter and I put my smartphone away so I'm really focused paying attention trying to help her learn and she recognizes a new word that's about as uh, meaningful work as I can do in a given day and I think we've got to step back and recognize some of those small moments and say yes this does make a difference and if you acknowledge it you'll do better work and you'll feel better about your uh, engagement at work and your well-being overall. I was really disappointed when I saw how low the statistic was for people doing what you know meaningful things, and and so that's what I was asking. To me, I wonder if people are walking around not even realizing that some of the little things they do every day are meaningful, but they're so wrapped up in the task and not the emotions around it that they're not really describing it that way. Yeah, you know, I think that's the challenge. It's it's, it's kind of boiling it back to a simple level and connecting an effort with the even the face of another human being where when in recent experiments when people preparing food in kitchens can see the customers who are eating it they make better quality food and they feel better about what they're doing and it's healthier um and even something i mean even something as obvious as we talk about this in the book the radiologists who um you would assume that if you're a radiologist helping people to find and detect cancers you'd find some meaning in your work but um As a part of an experimental uh, study, when researchers, for one group of radiologists, they just looked at the same old normal uh, kind of CTMR scans and the like, and another group, the researchers appended a photo of the patient to the record. So when there's a picture next to the radiographic scan, that increased their diagnostic accuracy by 46%. So that helped me to see how, I mean, even in cases where meaning would appear to be obvious, we still need to help people uh, put a face to that. Right. It's almost like you're saying people have to make it conscious, which is what I always say when people are striving towards greater happiness. You have to really be conscious about pursuing it. Right. And there, yeah, there's something about paying more attention in the moment, whether it's to the meaning you're creating or to another human being, that may be one of the toughest things to do nowadays. Now, let's talk about interaction, which is the second key that you talk about. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. One of the things that I've learned over the years is that, as we were just discussing, it's so easy to go through a day and not pay attention to whether you're infusing a little more positive energy into each of your interactions. And there's all kinds of great research out there highlighting the fact that we need at least, I would say, at least 80% of our interactions to be more positive just because 
a single negative interaction carries such a heavy load and is a counterweight to three, four, five positives. So the challenge there is just, I think, to realize that, I mean, first avoid anything that would really take someone else's day downhill, where I, I talk about in the book the way I've, I, I've been blind in, on my left side and my left eye for a couple decades now, and um, but I, I have a prosthetic eye, so people don't really know when they see me, but as a product of that, I accidentally bump into people on my left on a daily basis if I'm in coffee shops or tight spaces. And what I've learned through that little experiment of one is that it's always a much more interesting lens into what's going on in the other person's day than it is about me at all. And so I've kind of rehearsed my script of apologizing profusely and smiling and trying to make sure I diffuse that every time it occurs. But what, what I notice is that there are certainly times when it's the exception, but when other people are really hostile and aggravated by it. And the last thing that I should do in that scenario is to up the ante of hostility, make that person's day even worse, and allow myself to be pulled into it. And so when you kind of focus on those little interactions and exchanges, even if they're with strangers or someone you're walking by on the street in your neighborhood, those little things do add up and make a difference. Yeah, you know, I really like that you use the word script because it sounds like you you have sort of a plan of action of how to handle things when that conflict arises. And I think that's great advice, you know, across the board that that we all sort of think to ourselves how we want to interact differently. It's hard to do in the moment, but if you kind of remind yourself that, I mean, essentially you are winning for yourself and for the other person by infusing something different in there. I mean, that's always the one thing I try and come back to in those little interactions is that the the one gift that we've all got is that we have the ability to make the choice about our response, right? And so, I mean, if you would have chosen any other scenario and kind of sparring back, that would have had you wound up and frustrated later on in the day, it would have made her day even worse. And so, I mean, but it's still the challenge of how do you create some scripts to do that in the moment. Do you have any specific tips for people, you know, in an intimate relationship and marriage who, you know, it's it's tense, the other person's had a bad day, and and you really just sort of either want to walk away from them and disengage or, or, you know, yell at them? I mean, how do you suggest people handle that? Yeah, you know, I, that's one thing, I, without getting into too much into the weeds of this, but I'm, I'm kind of encouraged by, with all the technology that we have nowadays, that we start to become, we have more self-awareness of what's going on in terms of our own physiological response to things where um, I've, like, I've been kind of tracking my heart rate with different devices over the years. And you can see how I think we can get to that point eventually over the next few years where, I mean, our, our watch or device will tap us on the wrist and say, you might not want to send that email before it gets you in a lot of trouble. Oh, um, right. And, and I think, honestly, I do think we're getting close. So I think we need to try and have more self-awareness in the interim of when do you get to that point where it's better just to step back and breathe and not up the ante of your response. The other, the other thing I've learned uh, through a lot of the research I did for my previous book, Eat, Move, Sleep, is that another idea is just to go for a walk with that person. And it sounds really simple, but boy, you know, we think better when we walk and our minds are more expansive. And, you know, I've observed this in my own life where, you know, it's so easy when you're sitting around kind of with your back hunched over in chairs or on your couches to argue about something or to not give it as much attention as it deserves. But when I'm out for walks, whether it's with my wife or my kids or colleagues, 
it's a lot harder to have negative interactions and conversations. In a sense, it seems so obvious, go out and take a walk, but I think most people think to themselves, I'm going to go out and take a walk by myself. Mm-hmm. And so to actually bring the person where the tension is, I think it's a great idea. And it, and it actually seems like a perfect segue from what I read in your book to your, your conversation about energy. So will you talk about that third key? Yeah, and just to kind of preface that third key, one of the things that – I learned after writing the book, Eat, Move, Sleep, was that so many of the people that I really admire most in society, so I spent a lot of time with hospice workers and nurses and some of the leaders in big businesses I've admired most. And the one thing all of the most caring and serving people in the fabric of our society seem to have in common is that they put everyone else's needs in front of their own. And while I admire that deeply on an emotional level, um, it's not the right thing to do when it comes to your physical health and energy, if your goal is to be as helpful as possible to other people. So if you're that hospice nurse um, and you really need to be there for a patient in his or her most dire time of need, or you need to be there for a family at one of the most difficult points in their life, you need to have the energy to be your best that afternoon. And so I think we've got to challenge ourselves to kind of reverse that cycle and say, um, what are the things that we need in terms of the right foods that we need um, to be able to be active throughout the day and to have energy later in the day? And what are the things that we need to do to re- rearrange our schedules to sleep right so we get a great start on the next day in order to uh, not only have high happiness and well-being for ourselves, but if we are able to do that, we can be much more effective for other people in the process as well. So can you kind of give us some examples of how you might, you know, set up a day to accomplish that? Yeah, you know, a lot of it starts with getting, let's, let's, let's just say you even had a bad day today. So if you had a bad day today, as long as you get a solid seven or eight hours or a good night's sleep, the research that I've conducted suggests that that's almost like the reset button on a smartphone or a video game where you get a clean slate the next day where you're almost back to your normal baseline no matter how bad the day was before. So we've got to start by prioritizing that good night's sleep that starts the day. I've um, kind of been inspired by and spent some time with on the documentary we're working on. We interviewed the Army Surgeon General. and She's on a crusade about getting soldiers to sleep more because she says they need that uh, ammunition for their brains when they're in the battlefield. So instead of kind of this macho image of I only need four hours of sleep, it's clear from all the research that top performers sleep longer than lower performers. And when you need to be your very best, if you're a soldier, a pilot, a doctor, a teacher, a parent, you need to make sure you can get a good seven or eight hours sleep in order to start the next day off on the right foot. And so if you do that, then you're more likely to get some activity early in the day, which any activity for 20, 30 minutes early in the day boosts your mood for three, six, 12 hours. It makes you more likely to make dietary decisions for breakfast and for lunch that are lighter and allow you to have a lot of energy instead of a high-fat hangover from a bad lunch in the middle of the afternoon. And I think the thing I've really learned from this is we've got to find ways along that movement key to build activity in throughout the day. Because even if you go get that exercise at 6 a.m. in the morning, five days a week, that is not going to counteract sitting in an office chair or in your car while you're commuting for eight or 10 hours a day, which so many people do right now. And that's as big of a problem for our cognitive ability and thinking throughout the day as it is for our physical health alone. Yeah, I always tell people to get up and walk the office or, you know, walk down and get something out of their car or put something in their car. I'm glad to hear that there's actually research that backs that up. Yeah, and you know, I've read so much on the topic of um, activity 
and cognitive ability and learning and memory that my daughter started kindergarten this year and we changed our family schedules around quite a bit so that we could walk her to school and back every day, which is about a mile, uh, mile and a half each way. And we didn't do that because she needs exercise. They actually get a good amount of time in PE class in kindergarten and she runs around all afternoon. We did it because we knew she'd be a better learner and pay more attention and have better interactions with her friends from more of a cognitive standpoint if she got that activity early in the day. So we've essentially got to figure out ways to engineer a little bit of activities. You talked about walking around the office, parking in the back of the parking lot instead of driving around your car for 20 minutes so you don't have to walk an extra 50 steps and essentially reverse engineer what we've done over the last 25 years, which is working activity out of our day. I mean, it's literally, it's, it's so simple. It's like if you move more, you will work better. <laughs> you'll be stronger. You'll be happier. Yeah, it's, it's really remarkable. And all the studies I've looked at from functional MRI scans to tests of memory and ability, how maintaining some little bursts of activity, even if you set a timer to get up every 20 minutes and stretch your arms a bit, or if you're on, you make a rule for yourself that every time you're on a conference call, you walk around a little bit in circles just around your small space or whatever it might be. You don't, it doesn't even have to be grand changes where you're on a treadmill desk every day or you go by a standing desk. I think there are pretty simple ways to build that activity into each hour. Now, why do you encourage your readers to stop pursuing happiness and start creating meaning instead? That's been one of the things that I've probably learned the most from, from uh, academic research recently is that while there's a lot of overlap between the concepts of meaning and happiness, obviously, that meaning for most people has a connotation of it also entails doing something that serves other people where happiness could be something you're pursuing in isolation. And so that's where I think the research emerging on this topic suggests that um, in almost any circumstance, if you do some things today that boost the well-being of another person, that may be the single fastest way to pick yourself up in the process. And the more I've learned on these topics, even if I had a friend who was really struggling with his own well-being and he came to me and asked me for advice, I think the the last thing I would tell him is to spend most of his time trying to boost his own happiness in isolation. I think if he started doing some things for people he cares about, for people he serves in his work, for his community, that might be one of the best ways to pull him out of a rut. So so in your mind, it could be something like volunteering. It could be that you are you know, reaching out to connect with a friend or a neighbor or even something you do with your kids. It isn't just a one one note concept. It, it can really go anywhere in your community. Right. And it starts, you know, it starts with initiating. So instead of spending your whole day just kind of letting everything come at you, to, to your point, it's initiating a different response with the woman at the ATM that kind of turns things around right there. Or when you um, got up early and made your daughter breakfast and initiated something on a special day there. It's, it really is those moments that add up pretty quickly and carry forward for other people throughout the day. And I mean, that's always, if you've read like any of the work from Adam Grant in particular on giving and so forth, that the secret is that even when you think you're about out of giving, you just give, give, and give a little bit more and it continues to pick you and everyone else up. Well, as I'm sitting here listening to you, I'm thinking to myself that a lot of us get in a rut or a routine and we almost become robots and that ends up out of our routine, those kinds of things. And so it's almost like we have to plan to put them in. Yeah, that's, I think over the next decade, one of our greatest challenges is just going to be finding time to pay attention to the people who matter most and the efforts that can have the most impact. And 
I mean, it, honestly, it's so easy. If you were to tell me all I have to do tomorrow is walk up to my computer and respond to everything that comes at me, boy, that's simple. We kind of know how to do that, and it's fun sometimes. But <clears throat> initiating something new takes a little different, a different level of effort and initiation to do something that makes a difference for a person. But yet, that's really where a lot of the uh, well-being is created for other people. And it's also, in a business context, it's where most innovations and new products and new services and things that serve a lot of people are created when you're initiating something new, not when you're just answering questions all day. Yeah, and I kind of feel like our smartphones and, and whatnot have pulled us into a more isolated world. We think we're connecting with people because we're emailing or we're on Facebook or Twitter, but we're actually, if we're doing that in the grocery store, then we're not connecting to the cashier. I think another part of the challenge there is that, I mean, we've essentially all these, not only our devices that we unlock 110 plus times a day and everything popping up, desktop notifications and rings and so forth, we kind of have a responsibility to take some of that back. And imagine that what I've asked people to do recently is imagine that you're in the middle of a conversation with a family member, a loved one, that's a real important and in-depth conversation about something you care about a lot, or you're having an hour-long conversation with someone you are friends with or develop or mentor at work, and then and then go back and look at all the settings on your smartphone and say, which things truly deserve to interrupt the flow of an important and meaningful conversation? And so maybe in that case, if you think about your phones, two calls in a row from a family member, which seems like it's an emergency, should try and get through. But 99% of the stuff that causes us to jump and respond to the bell, like one of Pavlov's dogs or whatever, doesn't doesn't really deserve to break into our smartphone lock screen and to even cause us to move our glance when we're in a room. That's one of the studies that, and from Mario Fulichar's, it really got my attention was when researchers had people walk into a room and simply put their phone, their smartphone out on a table, even if the thing was turned off, no ringing, no vibrating, no lights, nothing, that's a signal to the other four or five people in the room that they didn't care about what they were saying and that they, the person who put the phone on the table wasn't paying attention. And it degrades the quality of the conversation and the well-being of everyone in the room. And so I, I think, I mean, smartphones have gotten, they've gone so far to the point that now it's almost a metaphor for I'm not paying attention to you. And so we've got to take that back a little bit. And I think we might have reached a tipping point here where people are starting to realize that. And so now we've just got to kind of set our notifications and so forth so that things uh, work in the favor of our relationships and interactions instead of being the first thing to break in. Now, I know that you mentioned that you have a feature-length movie coming out fully charged, and you also have a new children's book that I have as well called The Rechargeables. Um, will you tell us a little bit about that, those things? Yeah, you know, I'm, I've kind of spent a lot of time over the years thinking about how do we uh, help important research and messages to get out to the right audiences. And I've spent a lot of my time on uh, kind of business and nonfiction books over the years, but also realized that probably the most meaningful thing that I've worked on before, we, we did a book around how full is your bucket uh, for kids, an illustrated version that now it seems like it's used in most of the schools around the country as I move around. And um, see, seeing the influence that that's had on classrooms and families for kids at that kind of picture book age between three and eight, let's say, I've, I've actually probably derived more meaning from that than uh, any of the business books that I've worked on. So that was a good learning, and it's why we created a version of Eat, Move, Sleep for kids called The Rechargeables. It's kind of a story fantasy world where they 
learn how moving around and sleeping and eating some of the right foods give them more energy to have fun with their friends and so forth. Um, so that was the intent with the children's book called The Rechargeables we just released. And then uh, we're also working on a documentary around the book Fully Charged that features uh, a lot of the world's top social scientists talking about what it takes to create meaning and energy and happiness and better interactions. And I'm excited about that because I think there's a whole generation right now that will be very quick to click a play button on Amazon or Netflix or iTunes, but not as likely to read a full nonfiction book cover to cover as you might have seen several years ago. So we're just trying to find different ways to help all this great research from people around the country to reach a wider audience. And that is our good friend Tom Rath right here on Live Happy Now. If you want to know more about Tom or his books, feel free to log on to our website, livehappynow.com. And if you heard anything that you want to share that really spoke to you, feel free to do so and include us in on the conversation as well. Use the hashtag livehappynow on your social media outlets. And of course, if you have anything you'd like to share with us, ways that you're applying what Tom had to say into your life or things that you'd like to add, Feel free to do so. You can find us on Twitter at Live Happy. You can find us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Live Happy or on Instagram at My Live Happy. And, of course, you can always send us an email as well, podcast at LiveHappy.com. We're so glad that you chose to make us a part of your day, and we look forward to talking to you again very, very soon. Until next time, I'm J.R. Houston. Thank you, and remember to always.